Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Civitate, Part 2 of 4. Last week I described the history of Italy from the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century up until the 950s, by which time the peninsula had broken into a mosaic of competing interests of not only the great powers, but also increasingly local powers, such as maritime city-states. The good old days of the Roman Empire, though, were not forgotten, and so there persisted in many European minds the idea of the global emperor, who could bring back order and prosperity, and reunite the disparate peoples of Christendom. The problem was, who was the heir of Rome, and so could claim global authority? Was it the emperor in Constantinople? After all, the eastern half of the empire had never fallen. Or was it the pope as the spiritual head of Christendom and ruler of the city of Rome? Or was it the ancestors of Charlemagne who had been crowned emperor on Christmas Day 800? Each side argued their case, and with it a claim for the overall moral authority that came as head of the Christian people. And each side had many fervent supporters. Today I want to concentrate on the relationship between the papacy and the king of Germany and how it developed in the 10th and 11th centuries. In the Battle of Leckfield podcasts I told of the breakup of Charlemagne's empire, how by the 950s the kings of the western half had lost virtually all authority, but in the east a new dynasty had assumed power, the Saxons. In 955, at Leckfeld, King Otto I defeated the Hungarians and put an end to their destructive raids. This act, coupled with victory over the pagan winds, soon after, assured Otto supreme authority over Germania. He had successfully fulfilled his kingly duty of bringing peace, both by defending his people from outside attack and maintaining internal order. Otto now felt confident enough to claim the vacant title of Western Emperor for himself. Indeed, from this time on, he is referred to in the sources, at least by his supporters, as Imperator. However, to confirm his claim, what he needed was official recognition from the Pope, after the precedent set by Charlemagne in 800. Unfortunately, the popes in Rome at the time were hardly living by the standards set by their religion. Since at least the 700s, the papal office had been an object of competition between rival aristocratic factions in the city of Rome. By the early 900s, this often expressed itself violently. Thus, in September 903, Leo V was deposed after only 30 days by Christopher, who was himself overthrown in January 904 
by Sergius III with the military backing of the Lombard Duke of Spoleto. Sergius III is then said to have had both Leo and Christopher strangled in prison. Not only this, he then fathered a son by the 15-year-old daughter of the commander of the Roman militia, a man named Theophylact. When Sergius died, effective power in Rome passed into the hands of Theophylact. As the strong man of the city, Theophylact was able to decide who would be the next pope, and he appointed to the position the Bishop of Ravenna. The chief qualification of the new pope, John X, appeared to be his ability as a soldier. In fairness, this proved extremely useful when John personally led an army against the Arab marauders attacking the mouth of the river Gavigliano. With no assistance forthcoming from either the Franks or Byzantines, Rome had been left to fend for herself. A struggle for power in Rome raged in the next years between members of the family of Theophylact. Then in 954, his great-grandson, Octavian, became Prince of Rome, and in the following year was on top of that elected Pope as John XII, at the age of just 18. This young man received a terrible press in the contemporary sources, accused of bringing the papacy to its greatest depths of depravity by murder, adultery, corruption, and turning the sacred place into a whorehouse. While some accounts are no doubt exaggerated, there can be little doubt that he took his secular duties more seriously than his spiritual ones. Again, this is understandable to some extent, given the vulnerability of the city at the time. His principal duty was to help defend against an attack on the city by the king of the Lombards. However, he proved singularly incapable of this task. His forces were defeated and in desperation he had to turn to Otto for help. Otto was amenable to helping John, especially as he saw this as the route to gaining the title of emperor, once held by Charlemagne but now vacant. Otto was quite clearly the most powerful monarch in Western Europe after Lechfeld, but as emperor he would not gain not only further prestige, but also some very practical advantages. If granted the favour of the Pope, Otto would find it easier to control the clergy of Germany. The bishops of the time held substantial power and played a vital role in the administration of his empire. They helped to collect taxes, administer justice and organise local defences, as well as providing spiritual services to the population. And there were two very specific favours that the Pope could provide Otto, as well as crowning him emperor. The first was to create a new bishopric for the area around Magdeburg that the Saxon king had recently acquired from Slavs, an act that would help consolidate his control over the region. Secondly, the Pope had the power to take an abbey under his special protection and exempt it from episcopal control. What this meant in practice in Germany was that the abbot then became free of control from his local bishop, and instead above him would stand only the king. After the young Pope had agreed to crown him as emperor, Otto assembled his army to march upon Italy. The German king moved towards Pavia, the former Lombard capital of Italy, where he celebrated Christmas and assumed the title King of Italy for himself. 
The Lombard armies retreated to their strongholds in order to avoid battle with Otto, allowing him to advance southward unopposed. Otto reached Rome on the 31st of January 962, and three days later was crowned emperor in old St Peter's Basilica. Thus the Kingdom of Italy, which in practice was the northern half of the peninsula, was combined with the Kingdom of Germany into the Holy Roman Empire. In the following days, Otto and John XII ratified the so-called Diploma Ottonianum, confirming the Pope as the spiritual head of the Church and Otto as its secular protector. With these agreements confirmed, the new Emperor marched against the Lombards and forced their surrender in 963. But then, as he was busy putting down the last Lombard rebellions and starting to plan his return to Germany, he heard the news that the young Pope had decided to do a complete about term. He was now calling for military help against Otto, his new ally, not only from the Lombards, but from the Byzantines and Hungarians. Was John's change of plan the whim of a petulant and treacherous youth, or was there good reason? The alliance with Otto seemed to have been a very highly profitable transaction for John. In return for granting a title at no cost to himself, John had been saved by and was to continue to receive the direct military protection of the most powerful monarch in Europe. What's more, the cities that Lombards had captured were being returned to him to enjoy as he wished. However, the Pope may have feared that Otto was becoming too powerful, and very possibly he resented becoming dependent on, as he saw it, some uncouth barbarians from the north. Otto's first response was predictably bewilderment, so he sent envoys to Rome to find out what was going on. In his book, The Bad Popes, Russell Chamberlain says, quote, The envoys returned a few days later with a fantastic story of John's activities in Rome. Violence had again returned to the city as John's partisans ensured their leader's supremacy with the sword, while their leader returned to his life of debauchery. The pilgrim traffic had dried up entirely, and the Romans, ever more vulnerable in their pockets than their consciences, were talking of overthrowing their prince and summoning the emperor himself. End quote. Otto still held out hope for making up with John until he heard that Adalbert, the deposed king of Italy, had entered Rome to have his title returned to him by the Pope. The emperor could hardly let this go by, so he led his forces back to the city. Chamberlain continues, quote, The young Pope went through the motions of defiance, appearing in armour to lead a half-hearted attack, but his nerve failed when Otto was reported nearing the city. Hastily plundering St Peter's of what portable treasures remained, he fled to Tivoli with Adalbert. Otto entered on his heels, and three days later summoned a synod of the Roman Church to consider the whole situation. End quote. John responded by threatening to excommunicate anyone who attempted to depose him, but undeterred the emperor and the council, deposed John Twelfth and elected Pope Leo VIII in his place. As soon as the emperor was back in Germany, however, John returned to Rome at the head of a large company of friends and retainers, causing Leo to flee to the emperor for safety. Entering the city in February 964, John proceeded to summon a synod, which pronounced his deposition as uncanonical. 
After mutilating some of his enemies, he again was the effective ruler of Rome. That was until a year later when John died, allegedly in the bed of a married woman. When casting judgment on John Twelfth, bear in mind that the main source for these events was the Bishop of Cremona, named Lutprand, a supporter of Otto, who may have exaggerated the young man's excesses for reasons of propaganda. But even at our most generous, it is clear John acted foolishly and impulsively, and was hardly fit to head an organisation claiming high spiritual and moral authority. Yet even in the darkest days of the papacy, which reached its low point around this time in terms of its leaders, the Church retained real influence in Western Europe. It suited the clergy to be seen as part of a hierarchy headed by a Pope deemed as God's representative on earth. The kings and dukes likewise perceived themselves within a similar parallel secular hierarchy. Just as the kingdom of heaven was run by a hierarchy with God as the head and the angels below, so all people on earth had their place, the emperor at the top with kings below him, and then in turn dukes, counts, barons, knights, and at the bottom the common people, and all dependent on the salvation of their souls to God. King Canute of England had come to Rome in this period. There he wrote the following letter to his subjects that summed up the reverence Europeans felt for Rome. Quote, I have lately been to Rome to pray for the forgiveness of my sins, for the safety of my dominions and the people under my government. I have been the more diligent on this, for I have learned from the wise that St Peter has received from God great power in binding and loosening, and that he carries the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. The re-emergence of a powerful Christian emperor in Germany, who felt a duty to protect and cooperate with the papacy, ultimately helped to strengthen the authority of the medieval popes. But it also raised a difficult and delicate question of the division between papal authority and imperial power. This balance of power oscillated according to the strength of each successive emperor, and then later on the Pope's capacity to find alternative protectors. Otto's son, and then his grandson, Otto II and Otto III, continued to struggle to gain dominance of Italy against the Byzantines and Arabs, and were generally able to cooperate with the popes. But the emperor's presence in the peninsula diverted their much-needed attention away from threats in their homeland. Over the years, they were also kept busy fighting many other foes, including the Danes, the Slavs of Poland and Bohemia, the Dukes of Bavaria and the West Frankish kings. From our perspective today, and with the benefit of hindsight, the Emperor's sallies into Italy seem a foolish distraction from the serious and necessary business of forging and maintaining a strong and united Germany. The emperors, though, saw things different. Italy was a rich and fruitful area to tax and exploit, and it seemed natural for the emperor to wish to control the heartland of the old Roman Empire. The emperor's main foe in Italy, however, now became a resurgent Byzantium under Basil II, the Bulgar slayer. Having dealt with the Bulgarians at the Battle of the Clydon Pass, Basil turned his attention to Italy and in 1017 appointed his very capable general Basil Boyanes 
to consolidate recent gains on the peninsula. His first job was to put down an insurgency by the Lombards, who had recruited a small band of mercenaries from northern France, called Normans, to assist them. The two forces met near Canae, the site of Hannibal's victory over the Romans, 1,234 years before, and in the Second Battle of Canae, Boyanes achieved an equally decisive victory. The Byzantine success can be explained by the arrival of recent reinforcements from Constantinople, including a detachment of their own northern mercenaries, the Varingian Guard. Boyanes skilfully protected his gains by immediately building a great fortress at the Apennine Pass, guarding the entrance to the Apulian Plain, which he called Troia, after the ancient city of Asia Minor. To help garrison the fort, he hired some Normans of his own. Soon all the Metagiorna had submitted to Byzantine authority, with the exception of the Duchy of Benevento, which remained faithful to the papacy. In 1022, the German Emperor Henry II, in response to the Byzantine advances, led a combined papal and imperial army to fight back. He set siege to Troya in April of that year, but Buenos had chosen his site well. The fort proved impregnable, and the northern troops, after months of suffering in the summer heat and with malaria taking its toll, were forced to give up and return home. The Byzantines had tightened their control over southern Italy. But not for very long. After Basil II died in 1025, Byzantine fortunes suffered in Italy, as elsewhere in the empire. His successor, Constantine VIII, for some unknown reason, recalled Boyanes, which triggered a sudden decline in Byzantine influence in Italy. It was a turbulent period, even by Italian standards. Fortunes fluctuated repeatedly, not only for the four big powers, that is the Germans, Byzantium, the Papacy and the Arabs, but also for the various dukedoms of Benevento, Capua, Amalfi, Spoleto and Salerno. Alliances shifted continuously and the war seemed never-ending. The people who would end up benefiting most from this chaos were a group of newcomers, the Normans. Next week I will tell the story of their arrival in Italy. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.